Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is David Antonio Lee, CEO of Vera. Vera is a global leader in helping to tackle the world's most intractable environmental and social challenges by developing and managing standards that help the private sector, countries, and civil society achieve ambitious sustainable development and climate action goals. They also happen to be the certification body that's approved about 70% of the offsets that have been purchased in the market today. That is an amazing statistic. And offsets are such a lightning rod issue, such an important topic. Vera is the leading certification body, and David is the CEO. Suffice it to say, I'm grateful he took the time to come on the show. We have a great long-form discussion in this episode. There's almost no topic that we didn't cover in this discussion. I learned a lot from it. I think you will as well. And my hope is that in listening to this discussion, it spurs some meaningful and constructive dialogue, helps build more collective understanding and bridges, and fosters more collaboration, which is what MCJ is all about. David, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. We're with you. Uh, nice to have you. And I, I told you before we started recording, but I feel a lot of pressure on this one, actually, because offsets are and credits and the carbon markets are just such a timely and important topic, especially with, well, the stakes and the timelines and all the big net zero commitments that, <laughs> you know, that these big companies are, are making. And, and Vera is, you know, arguably one of, if not the most important bodies that kind of sits in the middle of all of this. And you're the CEO. So there's a lot of people that I know are going to be tuning in and listening to every word of, of this discussion. And, and I want to make sure that we give you a chance to, to share your perspective. And, and I have so many questions and I have no doubt that regardless of 
where this discussion goes. I'm going to learn a lot and our listeners will too. So, so I just want to start out by saying thank you for making the time to, to come on our little show. No, thank you. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Hopefully by the end of this podcast, you and your audience will have a better sense of you know, what offsets are and how they can actually contribute to the bigger challenge of solving the climate crisis. You know, it is a complicated space, but hopefully we'll try to, try to simplify and crystallize for folks some key elements behind what an offset is or what a real offset is and what it means and how, how it can actually make a difference. Sounds great. Well, for starters, what is Vera? Talk a bit about the organization and, and the work that you do. Yeah, so we're a standard-setting body. We're a nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C., and our job is to essentially certify good stuff, right? So that means we look at, and we're mostly looking at projects, so projects that are trying to create value by investing in good solutions to a variety of problems. Obviously, the problem at hand and our biggest and our our flagship program is the Verified Carbon Standard Program, the VCS program, and that program certifies carbon credits or carbon offsets. And so we get, as you can imagine, a number of projects wanting to get the certification because at the end of the day, if they are successful in getting the certification, they'll have a credit that has value in the market that a buyer can then buy. So we're, in many ways, and the glue that holds the market together. We sit in between the supply side, which are the project developers and the investors investing in projects, and they need to have trust that the rules that they're following actually are gonna generate something of value. And then on the other side, buyers, the demand side of the equation, they want to buy something that's of value. So they looking for, again, rules and procedures that have integrity and have credibility and give credibility to the underlying things they're buying. In this particular case, is carbon credits. In addition to the VCS program, which is, again, our flagship program, we run a number of other standards-based programs. Two of them help certify or help projects report their sustainable development benefits. One is the Climate Community and Biodiversity Standards, and that's exclusively for land-based projects. And the other one is the Sustainable Development Verified Impact Standard. But both of these allow projects to be able to report sustainable development outcomes, specifically and kind of audited, certified outcomes. And we also have run the Plastic Waste Reduction Standard, which is a similar take on the carbon credit concept, but in the plastic space. So essentially it allows people to go out there and pick up waste plastic that would have otherwise ended up in the environment or is already in the environment, collect it and either recycle it or make sure it gets deposited in a, in a proper landfill. And you can get credit for that as a way to finance the underlying activity of going out there and picking up plastic waste. So that's kind of the organization as a whole. We're built on you know, rules and procedures. We're sort of a, a quasi-regulatory body because most all of our procedures have a regulatory taste to them. So we, we update our rules on a consistent basis because we have to follow best practices and, and new, new scientific evidence. And then we also do public consultations all, on all major rule changes. So it's a very heavy you know, process, but in the end of the day, it's what you need to have a system that's trusted by both buyers and sellers of the credits. And I think I read somewhere, just to give a sense of the scale of Vera, that 70% of the offsets that have been purchased were approved by Vera. Is, it, is that a true statistic? Yeah, it's a pretty significant number. I mean, we are fortunate to be in the leading position in the market. So, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. We have a variety of different project types that we certify, but we also have a very scalable system. 
and yes, the the reality is, yeah, we do we do certify. We're the largest greenhouse gas crediting program in the voluntary carbon market. So I'm not sure that that applies to the the, the CDM, the Clean Development Mechanism, which is a system set up under the Kyoto Protocol. And this will change once the Article 6.4 program gets set up under the UN. But in the voluntary market, we're the leading greenhouse gas crediting standard. And David, maybe talk a bit about your personal journey. When and how and why did you first become interested in climate change as a problem? And then how did that and your professional life intersect? Yeah, great question. I was very fortunate when I was working as a consultant back in the days, I worked for ICF Consulting. And when I arrived there, I got recruited by a very good friend of mine who was doing projects in developing countries, working to provide recovery and recycling equipment for automotive service shops that were handling CFCs, so chlorofluorocarbons, right? So we went to, and this was all under the Montreal Protocol. So I was already working in a global agreement kind of a setting. And so we were working to develop these projects to work with automotive service shops and refrigeration mechanics to provide equipment so they could actually recover the refrigerant instead of venting it to the atmosphere and then clean it and use it again. So therefore to reduce demand. But part of my job also involved working with developing countries, particularly in in Latin America. I was born and raised in Mexico, so I speak Spanish. So I worked with the Latin American countries developing their greenhouse gas inventories. So this is the mid-90s. We already knew about climate change, but there was a lot less knowledge about what this was all about, what it meant for the world, even though there were some folks who kind of understood what the long-term impacts of this would be. But countries were starting to grapple with the idea of reporting their greenhouse gas emissions. So I was lucky enough to support a number of Latin American countries developing their greenhouse gas inventories. So that was my how I cut my teeth. I ended up being part of an auditing team that looked at one of the first large-scale emission reduction projects. It was a project that invested in, I think, 2.5 million compact fluorescent replacements for incandescent light bulbs in two cities in Mexico, Guadalajara and Monterrey. And so we looked at the environmental impact. So what the greenhouse gas benefits were of that, essentially a precursor to looking at what the carbon credits would be. And then after that, I got a job at USAID working as a global climate change advisor in Mexico. So that was how I started kind of this whole path. But, you know, the, the inventories were really the way I started cutting my teeth on greenhouse gas emissions and climate change in general. And the concept of an offset and of essentially while you're doing things that are generating emissions that you can offset. And yes, ultimately you need to stop doing those things or doing them in cleaner ways. But in the meantime, you can offset the difference to get to zero essentially. Where did that concept come from and when and and how did it first come about? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's been a lot of environmental economics, right, that have been studying this concept. So it first was born, and this is my telling of it, other folks might have a slightly different version of history, but there was the early years of the acid rain program in the United States, where companies were told, you have to reduce your emissions of sulfur emissions in your power plants, but you can trade amongst yourselves those permits. So that was the idea of basically providing an overall limit for an entire industrial sector, in this case, power plants burning coal, And then if you meet that target and you go below, you can actually sell your surplus to someone else. So that was called emissions trading. And then when the Kyoto Protocol got passed, 
there was this idea embedded into that that companies could trade their emissions, but they could also bring in emission reductions from outside of the boundary, if you will, of the bubble, if you will. So they were allowed to bring in reductions from, in this case, they were developing countries under the clean development mechanism of the Kyoto Protocol. And it was a way to recognize that companies could invest in projects elsewhere to reduce their footprint to the level that they needed to based on the regulation, but also what allowed them to reduce their costs. So there was a cost-saving element, and the idea and the philosophy is that if you reduce the cost, companies are more willing to actually take on the action. If you make it really difficult for them, they're going to fight it tooth and nail. So if you actually provide some flexibility to them, they will actually be more willing to play ball and actually reduce the emissions and not fight the regulation, for example, so much. So that was really the genesis of emissions trading and carbon offsetting, and it really happened in a regulated context. But what started happening in the early 2000s is that companies started to say, well, you know what? If the regulated entities, and those tended to be the large point sources, right? Obviously, the power plants, certainly in Europe, where the Kyoto Protocol was implemented, the cement plants, the refineries, the steel plants. A lot of their, you know, the ecosystem that supported them and that saw these regulations being in place, they said, well, actually, we could do this ourselves. We could reduce our emissions or we could try to invest in projects elsewhere. So it started to become a thing where companies wanted to invest in projects. And so, you know, over time, fast forward to today, we've come to a point where companies, especially the consumer facing ones, have essentially a new liability on their books. They have to report their greenhouse gas footprint. Once they report that, they have to do something about it. And hopefully that means they reduce their internal emissions to the level that they can, but they also can invest in projects beyond. And that gets to the net zero commitments, right? And I think if you think about offsetting, if it's used properly, you know, we encourage companies to set a target, a net zero target, meet that target, and go beyond that to reduce the residual emissions. And that's where I think the sweet spot is for carbon offsetting. But there's some work that we in the sector or in the industry, if you will, still have to do to clarify both what the claims are that companies need to make. So just an example, right? I was listening to NPR the other day and there was a credit card that got announced and said, oh, we'll plant a tree and you'll zero footprint and you're good to go. But they didn't really define what zero footprint is. They didn't use the term carbon neutral, but it's not clear what I get by using this credit card and how many trees are gonna plant and whether it's really gonna offset my footprint. But there's a lot of doubt and concern about what the claims are that companies are making when they buy an offset and whether they're meeting a target. If we can clarify that, that will provide a lot more clarity for people wanting to enter the market. And you'll be able to know, well, if I'm going to say I'm carbon neutral, it's going to mean that I'm doing X, Y, and Z. And ideally, we're pushing companies to set a target, a net zero target, meet that target, and offset the residual emissions that beyond their net zero target. But they're on a pathway to reaching that net zero target by 2050. Now, typically in the flow of these discussions, I would then dig in on Vera's work and where you fit in and offsets. And I actually, I want to take things in maybe the opposite order that I usually do and start with the big picture. So when I think about the clean energy transition with the caveat of and thinking about it a lot less long than you have, but I think about essentially there's a lot of good that came from the industrial revolution, but that the externalities of this pollution that gets created as part of this hyper growth gets 
pumped up into the atmosphere and there's really no no cost to that so you can just dump up unlimited and not really think about it and it's made kind of a mess and and cause us to live not in harmony with the planet that we rely on to support humans and other life forms and to some degree with each other due to things like like inequality and essentially we need to rearchitect the global economy to factor in the externalities and be more in harmony with the planet and with each other. So I'm going to stop there just to check. How does that align with your understanding of, of what needs to happen? I totally agree, right? It's the typical tragedy of the commons kind of situation where we pump emissions into the atmosphere. We don't see the immediate effects and therefore we don't assume that there's any cost. But in fact, we're now learning, certainly the APCC report yesterday made it very clear that there's some serious consequences. But our economy has been built around these systems that don't incorporate the costs of the greenhouse gas emissions, and yet it's having tremendous impacts and consequences for people who are now suffering the consequences of climate change. But nobody's, we need to figure out how we actually put in an economic signal so that we stop generating that many greenhouse gas emissions and we can correct the course of our economy. But I, I would agree that you're, you're absolutely right, that it's all about how we've basically developed as a society without taking into account the consequences of, of greenhouse gas emissions, which are now coming home to roost. There's another narrative. You, I mean, you hear about the 12 years or 10 years or catastrophic consequences, point of no return. And then there's others that say, look, it's more of a slider where, where the longer we take, the worse things are going to get. But worse just means, you know, like a higher probability of extreme events or some more suffering or things like that. But it's a slider. It's not like there's truly going to be an extinction event, and, and those are the stakes. And maybe this is more of a personal question than a Vera view, but, but where, where do you fall as you think about the, the stakes here and the, the magnitude of the problem? I think the stakes are pretty big. I worry constantly about threshold points that, you know, okay, fine, the weather today here in Washington, D.C., it's what it should be roughly. It's pretty cold, you know, it's around 32 degrees. That's what, what you would expect. But boy, you know, five weeks ago, it was 60 degrees. That was felt very uncomfortable. And then you start to think, well, what does that mean for everything in our ecosystem? Are the trees going to go through their natural cycle? What about the birds and everything else that supports that? I do worry that there's some significant threshold point of no return kind of moments that we would reach. I'm not a scientist, but that's just my personal view. And I think we need to do everything we possibly can to get off this track where we're pumping out so many emissions into the atmosphere. We have to do it. Again, I'm not a scientist. A scientist would be able to provide a bit more clarity, but I think the scientists are saying that, right? They're saying, look, we are in a situation today where we need to significantly draw down, not only stop putting all that emission, all those emissions into the atmosphere, but we need to start to draw down atmospheric carbon. And we're in a pretty dire situation. So yeah, I, I stand with, with those folks who are saying that it's a pretty dire situation. We need to do it. It may very well be that it's a, it is a bit of a slider, but I do think there are these things called tipping points, at which point there is a point of no return and things can get pretty bad. I don't think we want to test that. We've got the technology. We've got the ability to do it. We should just put it into action. And I, I'm sticking with these big philosophical questions up front for, for some reason. But when you look at our existing system, you know, the one that was responsible for the Industrial Revolution, the system of capitalism and market forces, 
Has that run its course or what role do you think that system should play in the next chapter for the world? So, you know, I would say that this is an indictment on the capitalist system. I just think the capitalist system is not, again, if we build in to the system we have the right measures to internalize externality, in this case, greenhouse gas emissions, I think we can use the system to get, get out of it. And I think that's really what markets are all about, right? If we can make sure that the markets recognize the value of a greenhouse gas emissions or you know, the cost, if you will, of a greenhouse gas emission into the atmosphere and we price that in, then the system will turn around and start to price and benefit those activities that are not pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And that I think is really key. I think I mean, the magnitude of the problem is so big. I think we need markets and we need the capitalist system to get us out, but we need to have it be bounded and directed in a way that actually helps us solve the problem and helps us develop the new technologies we still, we still need to develop to be able to reach scale, to scale the solutions that we need going forward. And that this might be an oversimplistic view, but it seems like in order to get there, we need to one, understand our emissions footprints, both the ones that we're directly responsible for and the ones that have you know second or, or third order consequences. Then we need to fix that and put in place cleaner options that, that don't have the same emissions footprints. And then we need to offset the difference in the meantime, but ultimately get there fully. So I'm going to stop. I said that as a statement, but it's really more of a question. How does that align with how you think about staging and what needs to happen? So I think if you go back to the organizing principle behind the science-based targets, right, or net zero targets, we are at a situation today that is unsustainable. We have to move every company in our economy to a net zero target. And that may be 2050, it may be earlier, but basically you need to start a, traje a trajectory from today that gets you down to net zero in 2050 or earlier, if possible. And that means reducing your emissions by 90 to 95% of what they are today over time. It's not gonna happen tomorrow. Some might be able to do it, that's great, but it will take time, especially the hard to evade sectors will have to take time to kind of move down that curve. And then at some point, I think the view is that at some point we will still be pumping out greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere just because it'll be impossible to completely wean ourselves from it. And that will be roughly 5 to 10% of the total emissions of what they are today. And for that, we need to be removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere so that we reach that net zero balance. That's what net zero is all about. And so, and that will be based on removing, you know, pulling out greenhouse, gas, greenhouse gases or carbon from the atmosphere. And so if we can get the companies of the world to follow that trajectory, that to me is the key. And importantly, where I think offsets can play a critical role is if you think about that area, let's, if you think about a curve and how a company goes from, let's say 100 tons today to five tons in 2050, all the way along that journey, they're gonna be what you call residual emissions. So maybe in five years time, they're at 70. And in 10 years time, they're at 50, right? At 70 and at 50, you're still emitting 70 emissions, 70 tons per year or 50 or whatever that trajectory looks like. But if you can be offsetting that and investing in projects that compensate for that, 
then we're doing double the good. We're not only getting on this trajectory, this net zero trajectory, but we're actually making the problem less difficult to solve in the long run. Because if you're only on that pathway, which is good, it's great, I'm not saying it's not, but if you're only on that pathway, you're still gonna be generating 70 tons per year or 50 tons per year until you get to that stage where you're emitting five or 10 tons. Now, that's a lot of emissions emitted over time. That's a lot of carbon in the atmosphere, which we're then gonna have to pull out. So why don't we actually invest today in activities that prevent that carbon from going to the atmosphere, and in many cases, actually help to strengthen some of the key natural ecosystems that our lives depend on, like forests. We do not want to lose the standing forest today. If we lose the standing forest, we lose a lot of biodiversity, we lose a lot of other very valuable aspects of our, of our world. So we can invest today in what are called natural climate solutions, right? We can also start to continue to invest in other activities that prevent greenhouse gas emissions going to the atmosphere. So there's a lot that you can do beyond just being on that trajectory to really help solve the climate crisis. When you look at these net zero commitments that these big companies are making, and they have, say, 2030 targets or 2050 targets, and although it's getting better and there's more accountability, a lot of these, there's not a lot of staging or concrete plans or accountability in between. If I were just trying to look at these companies objectively and figure out how serious they are, should I care about the ratio of reduction and offset when I'm assessing the caliber of their net zero commitment and progress? I don't think you want to look at the ratio. I think what you want to look at is what the target is, right? I think you want to make sure, I think, let's take the example I had before, right? Where you're emitting 100 tons today, and by 2050, you want to be emitting five. So today, maybe it's, it's hard to get to 90, but you have to get there. But maybe if you get to have to get to 80 in, let's say, 10 years time, right? You want to be measuring that company against their target. As long as they have a trajectory to get there, I think that's what we need to expect companies to be accountable. That's what we can hold them accountable to. But they have to have that target and they have to be meeting it over time. I think what's, what's going to be really interesting over the coming years is that we're starting to see the need for proper accounting of how companies are actually developing, implementing, and reporting on their targets. And I think that's very exciting. I'm actually very very hopeful because I think you've got initiatives out there like the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative and science-based targets, right? Who are basically trying to say, okay, here's the process for setting a target. The VCMI, the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative, is going to be looking at what sorts of claims companies can make on the back of the credits that they buy. But ideally, they're going to say, well, actually, you can only make a claim if you have a target and you're meeting your target or you're close to meeting your target, right? So that you can't just be saying, oh, I'm carbon neutral without having demonstrated that you have a target and that you're on a trajectory to meeting it. To me, again, that's the key. If we can pair these two internal reductions by companies to their footprint, additional action to compensate for the residual emissions, right? That's the sweet spot. And that's where we want to push companies to get to, because that is where I think we can have a significant impact on climate change. We can get on that curve, but we can solve the problem from getting worse in the long run. Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I think I'm hearing, and I'm going to state it back just to test my understanding, but I think I'm hearing that doing the hard work to decarbonize is optimal, but that it's going to take time no matter what, especially in the hard to abate sectors. And in the meantime, it is far better to offset than to do nothing, assuming that the offset is high quality and actually does what it says on the label. 
correct? Yes and no. I mean, I think that second part of what you said is very is very critical. You've got to make sure that the credits that you're buying are legitimate. That's, of course, that's what we spent all of our time on. There's another initiative, which I'd be remiss not to mention. It's called the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets. And that's going to look at all of the main greenhouse gas crediting programs, including the VCS, and determine whether what we do actually meets a set of criteria that they've set out. They're calling them the core carbon principles. You know, if the credits that a greenhouse gas crediting standard meets, sorry, issues, meet those criteria, they will be approved and there will be a clarity for buyers as to what kind of credits you can buy that are real. So that's absolutely true. It's really important that we have consistency and clarity in respect of what kinds of credits you can buy. But I think the one thing that I would add as a caveat to your statement is that, yes, we need to offset now, but it shouldn't come as a distraction to doing the hard work of decarbonization, right? And that's where I think offsets have had a challenge in respect of how they're perceived in the marketplace. People feel like, oh, a company is just going to offset their emissions. They're not going to do the hard work and therefore, and they can claim carbon neutrality. I think that's a real risk for the market that we need to make sure that companies are not doing that, that they are doing the hard work to reduce their internal emissions and that they're using offsetting as a final step to reduce their residual emissions. And I think it's true, right? If companies are only offsetting, I think that doesn't do a service to society because you know we can't offset our way to the solution here. Offsetting is a great thing if done in the right context if it complements internal reductions by companies. And if we can get to there, like I said before, that to me is a sweet spot. And when I look at the offset landscape, it, it seems like the key stakeholders, you've got the the buyers or you know the big companies or others, or I mean, it could be individuals for that matter, but that are looking to offset their emissions in, in some form. You've got the project developers who are actually producing the projects that could be potential offsets or credits. You've got the brokers, and then you've got the certification bodies in the middle. Did I miss any big ones, or is that the landscape? Yeah, that's that's essentially it, right? On the project developer side, you've got a lot of investors, right? So you've got a project developer, but the project developer has to get money from somewhere to be able to invest in that project. So you've got a lot of folks providing early investment into those projects. Now, that can be in the form of, I'm going to get some credits at the end of it, or it could just be investment as a business practice. And then, then there's, you know, on the on the buy side, I think you're starting to see, you know, you've got the, the intermediaries, which are, like you said, the brokers, but you're starting to see more and more exchanges, more formalized systems to manage a secondary market. And that's getting increasingly sophisticated. So I think you've got the, the right kind of categories, but both of those are starting to get more sophisticated because the market's evolving and it's getting bigger and attracting a lot more players. And historically, what are the key buckets in terms of types of offsets? And then what trends are you seeing in terms of the types of potential offsets? And, and what I mean there is, you know, could be avoidance, it could be removal, it, like what types of projects are out there? And then are the certification bodies like Vera, is it one size fits all that you can certify any kind of project? Or, or is it that certain kinds of certification bodies are better for certain kinds of projects? Yeah, it's a great question. There's a few in there. Let me try to take. Them I do that. I, I I want to get better at asking one question at a time. But my my, you know, it's just I'm like a kid <laughs> in a candy store. I can't control myself. <laughs> right. I'll try to answer those. To the first part of the question, there are a variety of different credits out there. I mean, if you think about the trajectory of markets, what we've seen in our system 
is that in the early days of the VCS program, the majority of the credits and the projects in the system were renewable energy projects. And that's because at the time, renewables weren't common, and so we credited a lot of them. But in 2019, we decided, we said, actually, we don't believe that grid-connected, you know, larger-scale renewable energy projects are additional. And that I'll try not to add lingo to the, to the podcast here, but that is the one, uh, if you bear with me, I will introduce that concept because it's really key to carbon markets. And essentially, by a project being additional, means that it wouldn't have happened without carbon finance. And because you're going to use that outcome of that project to offset another emission, you really have to demonstrate that carbon was a key driver in making that project happen. So in 2019, we decided that grid-connected renewables were no longer additional because basically they can stand on their own. Now, we still allow them in least developed countries because the conditions there are particularly challenging, but all of the countries, we don't allow them anymore. So we no longer credit renewable energy projects in most countries. And that means that that project type has now started to be a lot less important, certainly in what we certify. Now, back in 2010, one of the big innovations that we did was to support and bring into the carbon markets natural climate solutions. So forest conservation, forest restoration. Now we're starting to see a lot of work in the agricultural sector. So we really thought that these systems could leverage carbon finance to actually achieve some important goals. And the way it's played out is that, so, so we, we addressed some of the key challenges that people had in respect of these credits. And so I'll mention two of them. One of them is permanence. So the idea being, if you plant a tree or you conserve a tree, that tree can catch fire, it can be cut down, and the carbon stored in that tree can end up in the atmosphere, right? So that's a risk that all of those projects face. What we did is set up a system to create a rule that would require projects to set aside a certain percentage of the reductions they achieve. Now, if you imagine you plant 100 trees, you have to set a certain percentage of that carbon you've stored into what we call a buffer account. And so that buffer account, we can call on it whenever a project that does suffer a reversal, meaning that the trees get cut down, we can back it up and make sure that the credits that are in the market are legitimate. So it essentially works as an insurance pool. And as a project developer, you have to pay into that pool, percentage of the reductions you achieve. And so that was a way to address the permanence issue. And it's worked really well. And so we've seen quite a number of projects that are conserving forests. Now with the drive towards more removals, we're starting a lot of interest in removals projects. The other challenge we addressed was the issue of leakage. And this plays out particularly in respect of forest conservation. The fear was, oh, if you protect a patch of forest here, well, the drivers of deforestation are just going to go next door. So there's actually a set of rules that requires projects to measure leakage in the leakage belt around their project and to discount it from the emissions reductions that they achieve. So we were able to put in place systems and rules to address these concerns, and we were able to bring these credits into the market and make them fungible with everything else in the system. And that, I think, is a real value that basically, at the end of the day, when you have a VCU, which is what we issue, a verified carbon unit, it counts for a ton of greenhouse gas emission, whether it's a reduction or a removal. So there's a number of different project types. Those are very popular now, the nature-based solutions. We're starting to see a lot more in what's called the blue carbon space. So 
you know, areas that, you know, abutting sea and land. So mangrove restoration, mangrove conservation. There's a couple of, you know, very interesting project types being developed there. We're starting to see some more work in tidal wetlands. So kind of the wetlands, ocean, blue carbon is a very exciting space. And there's now an increasing interest in removals, as I mentioned before, because I think in 2050, we will have to have a huge store of removals projects happening. So we're starting to see some interesting moves, movements in terms of uh, director capture, some technological removals. And so to answer the last part of your question, I think one of the things that the ICBCM is going to do, the, again, that's the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets, is to set up a system where you can label or identify what kind of credits you're getting. So is it a removal or is it a reduction? Is it a nature-based solution or is it a technological solution? Do you have sustainable development reporting as part of that? So you'll be able to kind of identify what kind of projects they are so that you can best identify and meet your needs as a buyer. So a lot of companies prefer projects that are protecting forests or a lot of companies may prefer more technological solutions. So you'll be able to identify what those are and be able to choose the ones that you want. Uh huh. When it comes to purchasing, if I'm a big company and I've got a net zero commitment, I just want to be able to say that I'm making as much progress as I can towards that commitment. So if quality, for example, isn't factored in to how I'm doing against that commitment, I'm just going to go for the lowest cost because then my dollars or whatever unit of currency I use stretches the furthest and I can show the most progress and look like a hero and my stock price gets reflected and I get my bonus and, and the cycle continues. What incentive do these big companies have to care about quality? And if they don't, how do we get them to care more? So that's a great question. And I think that's really, again, part of why the ICBCM is going to be so important, because it's going to make sure that the credits that it blesses meet a certain threshold of quality. And that means that as a company, yeah, you might be, you know, you might just end up buying credits that meet that criteria. And, you know, that's down to the company and what kind of claims they want to make. Now, the threshold that my guess is going to be pretty high and pretty rigorous. So I think people should feel comfortable that once they're buying those credits, they should feel you know, very happy with that. And in the end, you'll be able to make a claim that you're actually, you know, meeting your target and you're offsetting with these. But the key thing there, I think, is also that this has to be part of a package, right? If you are only offsetting, then, you know, people wonder, well, why didn't you do any internal reductions? I think we need to hold companies to account to those internal reductions that they've set out set a path for. First of all, obviously, they need to set a pathway for achieving that net zero target, and they need to be demonstrating against that they're actually meeting that target. And beyond that, then they're offsetting. And I think once you've met that and you've, you have a target, you're meeting it, and you buy credits, you know, I think the concern about price won't be so much because you'll have this system under the ICBCM that will bless the credits that are legitimate. But companies will always have an incentive to line their interests along with the project types, right? So for example, again, I, I mentioned it before, companies want to have project types that resonate with either their, their staff or their clients or their consumers. And there's a number of different ways that you can slice that. But I think what we've seen in the, in the voluntary market, actually, which is interesting, is that we've seen companies be very concerned about quality because it is their reputation on the line. So they will have a strong interest in making sure that the actual credits that they're buying are legitimate. But again, once you have the system set up by the ACBCM, it will be clear. Now, there's a balance there, right? 
The ICBCM is trying to create a market that's more scalable and it's bigger to drive more finance to it. But that does come with a little bit more of, of knowing that this is the list of credits I can buy and I'm good to go. So there's a balance between you know, volume and scale and the, the detailed due diligence that companies have been doing, but which quite frankly is pretty difficult. Not all companies are going to go to that level of due diligence because it's very costly. It's very, it's very time consuming. And if you know that someone's already done that and there's a list of credits you can buy, then I think that will be good for the market because it will allow it to scale and it will allow you know, companies to enter the market with a lot more confidence. Uh-huh. I know you're, and correct me if I'm wrong, but part of your stated value proposition is that by being the certification body, you're also certifying the quality of the offset, correct? Correct. So one question I have is internally, do you measure what your batting average is of your assessments versus the realities and what percentage you have misses? And is that something you track and goal yourselves on trying to improve over time? So I'm not quite sure what you mean. Like, I mean, we have a rigorous process to check all the projects. I can clarify. So for example, when some studies come out that say that some of the offsets that you certify aren't quality, right? You know, some of the, you know, whether it's nature-based or, or otherwise, I've heard, you know, you or, or some of your staff reply that those are statistical anomalies and that, you know, no one's going to bat a thousand, but overall, you know, we deliver what we say we're going to deliver. And, and I guess what I'm asking is, do you track internally anything quantitative that shows, you know, that backs up that statement, essentially? I think the way to answer your question is that, you know, we have a set of rules and all projects that get approved have to follow those rules. Now, yeah, there may be some studies that come out and say, actually, that project didn't work, but they may apply a whole different assessment approach. So a good example here is forest conservation, right? And there has been a couple of reports out there that said, oh, actually, the baselines that have been put forth by projects using the VCS standard are not legitimate. They're inflated and they're generating too many credits. Well, and they're using a kind of a, a different way of assessing how you create that baseline. And so sorry to kind of dive into the, the devil here, the details, but I think it's worth it to answer your question. In order to create a baseline, you have to create a counterfactual because if you're gonna conserve a forest, you have to have some way of measuring what would have happened without the project, right? The way our rules are set out is you have to currently, is you have to set out a clear set of procedures. You have to identify areas that are similar in terrain, similar in proximity to roads. There's a whole list of criteria and projects follow that to create, find a reference area, that's what it's called, and then create the baseline for the project area. The criticism we've gotten, people said, oh, actually the reference area was wrong. If you pick this different reference area, you get a different emissions rate. Well, of course you do. Right? That makes sense. If you pick an entirely different area, then you know, you're going to get a different number. And you know, that's just part of what we do. We need to make sure that the rules that we set out are clear, they're consistent, and they're informed by science. Now, on this very issue, we are currently revising how we establish the baseline. And the reason is, and this goes back maybe to my, one of my earliest comments, right? that as a standard, we need to make sure that we're following the latest scientific evidence, the latest best practices, and the latest you know, government regulatory activities. So in this particular case, governments, back in 2010, governments weren't doing much at all about deforestation. And it was pretty much like, that's why we actually invested so much effort in making sure that we could actually drive carbon finance to the sector. But roll the videotape forward to today, 
governments are now starting to engage in forest conservation. And one of the things they're doing is they're coming up with what are called jurisdictional baselines. That's a baseline for a jurisdiction that's most likely a state, sometimes it's a country, but it's looking at the deforestation rate across the country or, or a state. And that's great because we can now use that and use that as the basis for setting out the baseline for an individual project, right? If we allocate that baseline down to the project level, we can have confidence that it's not going to be bigger than the whole pie and that it's based on kind of this government level set of information. Now, that's what we're moving towards and we're requiring projects who got developed in the early days, we'll require them to use these new rules. And I think that's all part of the, the approach where we need to recognize that this market is constantly evolving. Our rules have to be dynamic. They have to change with the circumstances. And again, we have to have a regulatory approach where we say, okay, guys, here's the new approach. Here are the new rules, what they're gonna look like. We do a consultation, we get the feedback, and then we provide the new rules and we give people a grace period to fall into those rules. But it's not like someone's going to come and say, oh, your projects are wrong, throw them out the window. That would never work because A, we'd be undermining a lot of early investment that was done in good faith. And we need to be conscious of the fact that we as a standard need to keep our rules updated over time so that projects can be brought along and continue to do the good work that they're doing. But to think of the world as being black and white, I think is just not helpful. And I think, you know, there will be studies out there that say, you know, you missed the beat, whatever. That's fine. We take all of that information and incorporate it into our rules as we go forward to make sure that our rules going forward are legitimate and follow, again, best practices, scientific evidence. And the point about regulatory developments is really important. The very first question we ask a project is, are you required by regulation? Now, if the answer is yes, you can imagine that we can say, okay, sorry, you can't get carbon credits because it's going to happen anyway, right? Back to that concept of additionality. But if the answer is no, then carbon finance can play a role. And that's the space we operate in. But as countries start to implement their obligations under the Paris Agreement, there will be more and more sectors of their economies that they will start to regulate. And that question we ask, are you required, is this project required by regulation? Will hopefully over time become yes, and we will have a smaller scope for activity in some of the existing project types that are currently, you know, fair game for carbon. But over time, those might actually get reduced. I mean, there's probably more than two camps, but for simplicity purposes, there's two camps of people. There's people that say the offset markets are broken and we need a different system. And there's a second group of people that say the offset markets are broken and we need to fix the existing system. So I want to break that down into two parts. First, the statement, the offset markets are broken. Agree or disagree? I disagree. I don't think they're broken. They work very well. I think the market is full of transparency. I mean, I was talking to some investors the other day and I explained to them what's in our registry and they looked at it and they were like, you know, I showed them what's in our registry, which is fully available to anybody in the public. You can find out anything you want on any project. You can find the project description. You can find the reports from the auditors. You can find the attestations that project developers make. You can find so much information in this space, which folks are really not accustomed to. So that's A, the information is there. The process is very thorough and complete and rigorous. And so to say that the offset market is broken, I think is wrong. Does it need to improve? Yes. And where I think it needs to improve are two main areas. One is it needs to provide a clear sense to the market as to what counts as a legitimate credit. Because right now, there's a number of different offsetting systems out there 
that some of which are and some which are not that legitimate. I would argue that you know, the VCS, along with the gold standard, the Climate Action Reserve, the American Carbon Registry, and some of the major greenhouse gas crediting programs are all legitimate. They all have the fundamental elements of a program, which includes a standard, rules on who can audit, rules for developing accounting methodologies, and a transparent registry. I could go into deeper on those, but pretty much that's what you need to look for. And I think that's what the ICDCM will be looking for. Now, where I do think the carbon markets, the offset market needs more help, because actually I think that the supply side is pretty rigorous already, is on the demand side, on the claims. Right now, there really isn't much to say as to what really a carbon neutral claim or a climate neutral or a climate compensated claim looks like, right? I mean, on, you know, on the Super Bowl, I was hearing on NPR or someplace like, oh, you know, I can't remember the beer, but we're, we're going to be the first carbon neutral beer. Well, what does that mean? Do you have a target, science-based target? Do you have a net zero target? Are you meeting it? Are you compensating the rest? I mean, nobody really has yet defined with the claim side of it. And I do think that that's a part of the market that needs a lot of attention. And I think, you know, back to that initiative, the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative, once that plays through, if they're able to create that clarity for what a legitimate carbon offsetting claim is, you know, they will define the terms and what it means. But if we can get clarity on that, that will be really important. I think that will address a lot of the concerns that people have about the market. But it's not broken. It's working fine. It can be improved for sure. But I think it's working. It's, it's working very well. But I wouldn't give it an A, right? I'd give it maybe a B at this stage. But we need to work on getting it up to an A. Uh-huh. When you look at the organizations like a Carbon Plan or like a Carbon Direct, and I'm sure there's others, why do you think they feel the need to exist? And I'd also just love to get your perspective on what role they're playing and whether how much and, and whether they're adding value to the marketplace. So I don't know exactly, I've got a lot of carbon organizations, you know, in my mind here. Let me ask a more general question. Organizations out there digging in on the quality of, on a project by project basis of carbon removal projects, as an example, or organizations that are holding the hands of big companies to helping them run their RFP processes and suss out purchasing decisions around their portfolio of carbon removal project purchases? Yeah, I think they're, they're playing a good role in the marketplace. I think they actually are filling a space that's needed because companies making big offset purchases are wondering, well, what do I do? There's all these choices out there. How do I know which is legitimate? So I think that's part of the challenge that we have. My hope is that once the ICBCM has provides that clarity, that you'll have a less of a need for companies, for everybody to be doing this. But I think there will still be an important role that they will play because companies will want to have that due diligence. And maybe they'll say, oh, maybe there's these 15 projects that I really like and they're all approved by the ICBCM, but I want to dig in deeper. I want to understand them better. I want to know which ones are really providing the kinds of benefits that I need. So I think this is a, I see it as a reflection of an increasing sophistication in the market and the fact that large buyers are wanting to really get the credits that they really want and they can identify and that resonate with whether it's their staff, their their stakeholders, whatever. And I think that's a good thing. But I think the need for that will fall as we have more clarity from the ICBCM as to what really counts as a carbon credit. And maybe, well, we'll see what that, how that plays out. But I think ultimately, you know, I'm hoping that the 
ICBCM will provide that clarity that will give companies more confidence to enter the market. But I think they'll still be able and they'll still be an important role for companies that are looking at individual project types and comparing them across for a variety of other criteria. Uh, anecdotally, I've, I've heard from some project developers that are more focused on technological innovation that their sense is that certification bodies like Vera are better equipped on the avoidance side, but because the technological innovation requires different skill sets to assess that it's been harder to push new projects through. What's your response to that? Do you agree, disagree? What, what color can you add for, for that topic? In order to get a project, you need to have an accounting methodology developed, right? Or a protocol, that's how that's what some people use. So you have to have the rules that set out what sort of data you're gonna gather, how you're gonna determine that the project is additional, and you have to have templates for the data, all that stuff. It's how you account for the carbon. So developing a methodology is not, you don't, it's not like just add some water and off it goes, right? You, it requires a fair bit of time and effort. So we are seeing a number of methodologies being submitted to our system, but it has to go through a process, right? It has to be reviewed by our staff. It has to be reviewed by an independent auditor. It has to go through a 30-day public consultation. It has to go through a public consultation, right? So it's got to have a process. So there's a lot of projects out there that are looking to get carbon finance, but you have the first step is you have to get an approved methodology that applies to your project. So, you know, and we're seeing lots of that. I don't, I don't know what exactly you're hearing, but I do know that there's a number of different new methodologies being proposed under our system and that we'll see a lot of these new technological and removal types of activities available at some point. I mean, I can't guarantee that they will be approved. They've got to go through the process, but it's a complicated process, right? We need to apply all the rigor we traditionally have been applying to make sure that the end product is legitimate. Yeah, no, and I'm hearing the tension as you're talking through it, because on the one hand, you know, you're getting pushed by me and by the marketplace for better quality, better quality, better quality. And on the other, you know, you're being pushed by the marketplace to not be a bottleneck and to scale. So how do you scale without compromising quality? And can you scale without compromising quality? Or does the pie need to look more evenly distributed than 70% of all offsets getting approved by Vera in order to support what's needed in the marketplace? Yeah, that's a good question. You kind of, you know, pinpointed kind of one of one of my pain points right now, right? Which is like, oh my God, we've got loads and loads of projects coming through the door and we are doing a number of things. I mean, the first thing is we're just hiring like crazy. We've grown from a 20 to 25 person operation to more than 80 or 90 today. And we're going to continue that growth pattern for the next year. So we're looking at having easily more than 100 by the middle of this year and moving up, up the volume in terms of, you know, folks looking at projects. So one is hiring, obviously it's training, making sure that the project documentation that we get in the door is of high quality, which means working more closely with the auditors. A lot of times we end up catching stuff that the auditors miss. If we can improve what the auditors are doing, we can start to create that, that system that enables us to, to do the final check and just only catch final things. We need to work on that. But the other thing we're doing is building out our IT systems, both to track projects, but also to digitalize the entire project development process and the MRV in the long run. So if you can imagine what happens today, you prepare a document, it's a PDF, you submit it, someone has to go through it, check you know all the different sections, and then at some point it gets approved by the auditor, it comes to us, we check again, and then at some point it gets uploaded. But 
that's a fairly inefficient and somewhat antiquated process. So what we're trying to do is we actually have a working group on this, is trying to get the methodologies automated or digitalized. So you will then, instead of submitting a PDF document, you'll submit all your do all, the, all of your information through an electronic platform. That means putting those methodologies on an electronic platform. You'll submit the information. It will be much more readily available. It will be much more immediate, and we'll be able to search for things more readily, right? So it will make the data availability much stronger on our registry, and that will then play its way through the assessment and the approval process. And then at some point, we'll also have the MRV being supported by digital technology. So if you think about, you know, a meter on a landfill gas project, that you can imagine how you could actually have a meter sending a message through a system that says, I've captured so much gas, it's been measured, we have such concentrations of greenhouse gases, we've applied this destruction technology, we've destroyed 99% of the methane, and therefore we can turn it into a credit. And then that would then simplify that whole process and you'd be able to get to issuance much more quickly. That's the kind of thing we're trying to include in our registry and the whole functionality. That I think is gonna allow us to move a lot more projects through the system. You know, once we add the staff, you know, make sure the auditors are doing their job and that we make sure that we have the IT systems to support that. But that's kind of what, that's high level what we're trying to do to make sure that we handle all of the volume that's coming through. So we talked before about big company incentives around net zero commitments and what things they need to get pushed on and stuff like that. I want to take that same lens when we look at Vera for a moment, where you talk about needing to keep up with the demand and needing to scale your systems and processes. And in order to do that, it takes resource. In order to take resource, it takes people and it takes budget. In order to get budget as a nonprofit, it takes funding. So I'd love to understand better incentives and what it takes to make sure that you have the capital that you need from a donor standpoint and what incentives you set out internally to drive the behavior that's desired from the team and across the organization? Yeah, no, great question. So we have a fairly straightforward funding system. We generate our, our revenues by applying fees to users of the system. So if you want to register a project, you have to pay us a fee that ends up being a deposit or a credit against your issuance fee. But once you start to issue credits, then you pay us a fee and it's a flat fee. It reduces for volumes because, you know, once you start to generate large volumes, then we don't need to be generating that much revenue for big volumes. So there's a sliding scale. And that, that's what keeps the lights on. So we're fortunate that we have a system that actually is self-regulating. And, you know, the incentive is if we end up doing bad quality work, eventually those issuance requests will dry up. So we have a strong incentive and, you know, we reinforce this through our internal management systems that we need to make sure that the credits that we're issuing are, are high quality and that we're providing a kind of a thorough review of all the projects in the system. And we provide internal trainings, you know, oversight. And there's, you can imagine, there's a set of, you know, hierarchy decisions that get made as, as, as a project goes through the system. But, you know, it's about making sure that the, again, that the whole system is working, not only from the auditors, but also our internal systems are built to make sure that we're, we're providing credits that are, we're issuing credits that are of high quality. 
when you look at the scale that's required, a lot of that, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is predicated around the voluntary market continuing to grow the way that it has been or even accelerating. How far do you think the voluntary market can take us? Um, how important is the compliance market? And what will it take to get compliance to play a bigger role if you believe that it should? So I do believe that it should. And I think in many ways, you know, when I first started this job, back to kind of the personal story, when I took it in 2008, I literally thought this was a five-year job. I thought, you know, the markets will be regulated. You know, the Obama administration will actually, you know, pass climate change legislation. And, you know, the voluntary markets will be a thing of history and we'll be able to turn the lights out, close the door, declare victory and move on. Unfortunately, that has not happened. The governments of the world have not stepped up at the rate and the level that we need. So I am a strong, strong believer that we need comprehensive, regulated greenhouse gas controls throughout the economy. And the faster that happens, the better. We are not about trying to create this big organization that's actually gonna you know, exist forever just because governments aren't doing their job. And going back to another point I made, if you can imagine, if governments actually step up and start to regulate a greater part of their economies, you start to reduce the scope for voluntary action. So there's a natural kind of decline in the work that we do built in if we actually get on top of the problem. And that's great. I mean, we totally welcome that. We're fully supportive of that. We don't want to you know, have offsetting be this thing that you keep doing forever. Now, with the caveat though, that even when we get to 2050, we are going to have to have removals because we are most likely not going to be able to wean ourselves completely off of carbon, off of greenhouse gas emissions. So we will need a mechanism and a system to account for the reductions that are, that, for the emissions that we're going to be removing from the atmosphere through removal systems. So, you know, I think the reduction kind of projects, they have a limited time frame, but we're not there yet. We still have a huge problem on our hands. Companies are, again, back to that example we had, we have a lot of companies that at 100 or 95 when they should be down to 10 or 5 by 2050. So we have a huge volume of reductions to achieve between now and then, and those can be either avoided emissions or they can be removals. But in the long run, we have still a need for removal. So I think you know there's still quite a bit of activity that organizations like Vera can do to foster investment in emission reduction activities between now and maybe what five ten years but hopefully soon enough those reduction activities start to get reduced start to fall off the map if you will because countries will actually begin to start to regulate those sectors and there'll be fewer opportunities and that's a welcome thing and just a couple other random ones that I think are important that we haven't hit yet, and I know we're, we're starting to run long, but one is just around technology. When you talk about manual processes and automation and scale, I can't help but look at trends around remote sensing, satellites, AI, things like that. Are those interest areas for you? Are there specific gaps? Do you have a wish list? And when you do go to embrace technology, if you do, do you have more of a partner approach or, or a build it in-house? How, how do you think about that? And what message do you have for, you know, for third parties out there that might be working on different potential pieces of this puzzle? Yes, that's absolutely a huge priority for us, right? So the more we can use and leverage those technologies, the better. We've not had a single partner approach to our work. We've tended to work with a variety of partners and we kind of let 
a thousand flowers bloom and let people use whatever works out there. You know, we try to think of the world in a way that we'll set the rules. If you can meet the rules, then that's great. And there may be different approaches and different technologies that people can use. So we're not, we're not likely to kind of bless a single system, a single technology. For example, our methodologies, they are technology agnostic, right? Or they're, they're proprietary. They're not proprietary. You can't say, oh, I'll develop a methodology where you have to use my technology. We would never accept that. You can say, we use a methodology. We use this kind of technology, and ours is one of them, but we're not the only one, or you know, anybody else can come up with a technology that's, that meets these criteria. So we, we tend to provide a framework or a set of rules that allows a variety of players to operate and to access it. And in the case of technology, you know, AI and that kind of stuff, you know, we'll set the rules for what is allowed. And that would allow different players to come up with different you know, mousetraps and, and, and they can then figure out which is the, the market can then figure out which is the best one. But we try not to kind of choose winners in that sense. We try to set the rules and let the market sort itself out. And then similar question around Web3. So as players like Toucan or Klimadao or, or others emerge, how much are you thinking about that area? How are you thinking about that area? Is it an opportunity? Is it a threat? Is it a distraction? Any color you can add around Web3 and trends and what relevance it has for, for the Vera world would be super interesting to me and I know others as well. Yeah, I mean, those are, those are kind of exciting new developments. I think our view is that right now, folks need to be careful about what this is enabling and, you know, make sure that kind of what the systems that you're using are actually have, have some level of transparency and clarity and are actually doing the right thing. It's early days. I think we're trying to figure out exactly how to be a, a partner and a, a catalyst for more investment in this market. But we need to make sure that it's all done in the right way. Um, so, you know, it's, it's early days. I, I don't know too much about it. I can't speak too much about it yet because I don't know much about it. But, we, for example, we did put out a note, you know, back at the end of last year saying, hey, you know, these are all very exciting things. They're great for innovation. But, hey, just be careful. Make sure you're doing the right thing. And, you know, we may have more on that later. But for now, we're saying, well, you know, just be careful what you're signing up to. Check it. Make sure it's doing what it says it is. Make sure that it's being transparent and make sure that the end result is good. Uh-huh. And looking forward, what are the key priorities internally for Vera over the next, say, 12 or 24 months? I think for us, it's to be able to manage the huge influx of project requests that are coming in the door and queries and account openings, you can imagine. So I think we are in the process of upgrading all of our internal technology tracking systems so that we can actually you know, manage the workload. And then there's the digitalizing of the whole project cycle. I'd like to see that start to basically start to have an impact and, and start to have some examples of how this could work. That to me is really important because it's going to help with the workload. And I think there's also an element there of making sure that we're as transparent as possible with the stakeholders. Because, you know, we get stakeholders, they call up, say, hey, where's my project? How come I haven't heard back from you? I'd like to have some system that provides some clarity and transparency to that process. And that we train, you know, all of our, our existing and growing staff effectively so that we can provide the support to the market. But to me, it's really about that. There's a few other kind of internal changes we're making to the design of the organization. So, you know, we're looking to hire 
a managing director and that that job is out you know posted publicly and we need to have someone we're looking for someone who can help us integrate the different parts of the organization and allow me to do some of the other work because I can't be external facing doing this kind of stuff working with a board and managing the details of the organization so you know there's some interesting internal changes that we're doing we're looking for a chief communications officer for example so you know there's some changes we're doing because we're growing from a small organization where you know we all knew each other we all could know what was going on because we it was a pretty small group of people to now where we're going to be more than 100 people we need to have much more kind of clear business processes to make sure that we're all in touch that we're actually processing things properly but that we're all keeping up to date on kind of what's what's happening and that requires systems and kind of you know operational excellence that we need to that we need to build out so that would i would i would say kind of priorities are let's make sure that we actually build out the organization that we build out the ability to kind of respond to all the projects we're also embracing all these new technologies whether it's from the digitalizing the methodologies to kind of doing the whole digitalizing and automating all of the the project flow through the project review and approval process but also the mrv which you mentioned uh-huh. And then what about stuff that's outside of your control? If you could wave your magic wand and change one thing that's outside of the scope of your control, that would most accelerate your progress and the broader progress towards the mission of the organization. What would you change and how would you change it? One magic wand? How many ways do I get? I mean, if you have more than one at the tip of the tongue, let's hear them. So the first one would be, let's get governments to step up. That would be number one. That would actually solve the problem. And in fact, it might mean that we could reduce our operations. And that would be fine with me. I mean, I fundamentally believe that if government stepped up to the level that we need, you know, there may not be such a need for the volunteer market. And that would be fine with me. So that would be one, number one. One, number two, considering that that's not very likely to happen, is I think we need clarity in respect of the claims that are made. I really think this is important. And this market has now existed for roughly 20 years. And there's still confusion about what carbon neutrality is, what compensating my footprint means, etc. And that is a really, really critical thing. The thing is, as soon as we have clarity on that, I think people will start to identify, you know, what it is that company is really doing. And I think part of that, sub wand, if you will, is we need to have systems to enable companies not only to make and set their, their net zero targets, but a way to, for them to report against those targets. Those really don't exist today in a very incipient stage. So I would like to see that happen because that's going to allow us to be able to separate the companies that are really on the track, making that progress, making those commitments and making that progress from the ones that aren't. And I think that's critical. That's where offsetting will really have tremendous value. And then, yeah, those those would be the ones I would say. I mean, a third one would be this idea of, you know, what the ICBCM is doing, which is set out what are the legitimate and the, the carbon credits that are real, that hold water, that are real. I think that will help the market a lot. And who do you want to hear from, if anybody, and how can listeners be helpful to you and to Vera? For me, you know, understanding what people are hearing and seeing and perceiving in the market is really important, especially now that we're kind of all pretty much at home. It, it's hard to get a sense of what the real zeitgeist is out there on this. I mean, I, I do understand that there's a fair bit of 
concern and you know, concern about the market. I mean, your question I thought was interesting. You're like, you know, is the market broken? There's probably a lot of people who feel that. I'd be curious to hear from people if they really do believe that it's broken or if the changes that are being made make sense. So that to me, I'd be curious to hear, you know, whether the things that I wave that it waved that magic wand for, if those make sense. I mean, that's my perspective. Uh, I'd be curious to know if that kind of resonates with people. Yeah, so typically I end this by saying any parting words, but I actually want to ask something more targeted in this case, and, and that is for the people out there that say offsets are just a distraction that enable people to just status quo, business as usual, and keep right on emitting, and they need to go, they're in the way, and they're not just neutral, they're actively harmful. What do you say to those people? I guess first of all is I hear you, and I think that if offsets are done as the only solution, I wouldn't necessarily disagree too much. I mean, if, if we are only offsetting, we're not going to solve the problem. So offsets have to be part of a bigger solution. They have to be part of a company that is taking on the target, working to meet that target. And then if you are then offsetting, then it can really be a game changer because we're going to prevent a lot of bad stuff from going into the atmosphere. We could actually help preserve a lot of beautiful, pristine natural ecosystems, which are very valuable beyond the whole carbon space. And it'll make that that job long-term a lot easier because we won't have to remove as much greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. So I think offsets, you know, on their own as an only solution aren't going to work. And I would agree with you, but I don't think that's the case. I think there's an opportunity here to really leverage this carbon finance and bring it to provide finance for stuff that wouldn't have happened that's going to help us do a number of things that are important for, for the world. Great. Well, D David, this has been amazing. This discussion did not disappoint, and I'm sure it's going to spur a bunch of interesting and valuable dialogue too. And, and one hope we have both for this discussion and just for MCJ in general is that it breaks down barriers and helps humanize people that, that might you know be behind faceless organizations. And as you said, in this world of Zoom work and everything, I think that's important. And also just clear up misconceptions and start to build bridges so that foster more collaboration since a lot of the people that are out squabbling actually have the same goals at the end of the day. And, and if they could work more closely together, then we all win. Yeah, no, uh, I, I agree. And thank you very much. It's been, a, it's been a real pleasure. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for all your good, pointed, and challenging questions. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you for coming on the show. Take it easy. Have a nice day. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.